And you may be seated. I invite you to open with me uh, now to the book of Revelation. It's been several weeks since we have uh, been in our series on Revelation. Our text today is Revelation 17, 1 through 6. Revelation 17 and 1 through 6. With uh, Revelation 17 comes a new section in the book of Revelation. You may recall uh, that I have said that I believe Revelation breaks up uh, most clearly into seven different sections of Scripture, each one of our sections of the book, each one of those taking us, as it were, from the first coming of Jesus Christ to the second. And as we move along further in the book, more and more of the emphasis is placed upon the second coming of Christ and the day of judgment and salvation that will attend uh, that day. Well, we've made our way through five different sections of Revelation so far, and today we come to Revelation uh, chapter 17. This section will run from Revelation 17 down through chapter uh, 19. And the focus of this section especially is going to be on judgment, the judgment especially of Babylon. Now we have read already a couple of times of the fall of Babylon in chapter 14, for example, and verse 8. There we read of an angel that said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And then uh, in chapter 16, in verse 19, we also read of the fall of Babylon. There we were told that the great city was split into three parts. The city of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. But now, in chapters 17 and 18, that which has been already announced and executed in two different places in Revelation, we are now going to have, as it were, opened up for us. Two chapters are going to tell us now about this event of the fall of uh, Babylon. And really, these two chapters, 17 and 18, uh, can be kind of broken up in this way. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to see the character of Babylon. That's our passage today. In verses 7 through 18, which we'll look at two weeks from today, uh, uh, that will be on the history of Babylon. And then in chapter 18, we will consider the fall of Babylon. So today, the character of Babylon, and that's in chapters 17, verses 1 through 6. Now let's now hear God's word uh, read. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. 
And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. This ends this reading in God's word. Uh, Let's look again to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our God in heaven, uh, we thank you for this passage out of Holy Scripture. We thank you for every word of the living Scriptures that tell us of who you are and of what you have done and of how we ought to live. We pray, O Holy Spirit of God, that you who first inspired these scriptures to be written now would illumine our own minds and our hearts, change our wills. Lord, give us a desire to follow after you. Give us an understanding of the way you would have us to go. Help us to see more of the beauties of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to live for him and for him only. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, if you are a Christian, then you have a bridegroom. You have a wedding day. In fact, the way that the scriptures put it is you are betrothed to your husband, the Lord. And in fact, this section of Revelation looks forward to that time when we will be invited to that wedding, to that wedding supper of the Lamb, when the church... The church as the bride making herself ready, clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, will meet our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have been pledged to him. We belong to him. He is our groom. We are the bride. But this means that if we are his, that we are to live in exclusive devotion uh, to Him. He alone is our lover. And we are to advance, or we are to uh, resist the advances of all other lovers. Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, Paul says to the church, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now the passage that we have before us speaks of a seductress who is trying to allure us away from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The picture here is that of a harlot. A harlot who is alluring. A harlot who may excite us for a moment. A a harlot who holds out certain promises of pleasure. But a harlot who is destructive in the end. And it is one that we must recognize and resist as we would be faithful to our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage today is all about recognizing and identifying this harlot who would uh, seduce us. You'll notice in verse 1, the language there is the angel saying to us, Come, and I will show you. And then in verse 3, it is, I saw a woman. And again, verse 6, And I saw the woman. And then at the end of verse 6, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. He is saying, Come and take a look at this one. Recognize who this is so that you might resist this harlot. In fact, in uh, chapter 18 and verse 4, we are going to be given this instruction. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Well, How are we ever to come out of this harlot, of this Babylon? How are we to resist this one if we don't, first of all, recognize who it is? And so that's what this passage is all about. In fact, in this passage, one of these seven angels takes us, we are told, verse 3, away in the Spirit into the wilderness. And in uh, the book of Revelation so far, the wilderness has been that place where the church has been kept secure and safe under the protection of Almighty God. And it's saying, come here into the wilderness where you are given a clear spiritual sight of what this harlot is all about. Have a kind of spiritual objectivity. If you engage, as it were, in the sins of this harlot, well, you're not going to look at it in an objective way. Rather, come away, he's saying, with the Lord, under his eye, and look at what this is that so seduces you. Well, we're going to look, try to get a clear view of this harlot named Babylon uh, in this passage today. We're going to do it under five different headings. Uh, We're going to see her influence. Secondly, her alliance. Third, her allurement. Fourth, her abominations. And fifth, her character. Her influence, her alliance, her allurement, her abominations, And lastly, her character. Well, the first thing is her influence. Her influence. And we see this in the first couple of verses. We're told that one of the seven angels who had those seven bowls uh, that we just read about in uh, chapter 16, that one of those angels now comes and says to us, Come, I am going to show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And so we are brought to see a particular woman. Now this woman is different 
than the woman of uh, chapter 12. Uh, the woman of chapter 12, you may recall, is a woman who represented the church. So let me just say that there's no, uh, nothing bad about being a woman. In fact, in chapter 12, a woman there is given the highest, is a picture of this, this, this glorious uh, uh, being called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, though, in chapter uh, 17, we are given a picture of another woman, though, and this woman is a prostitute or a harlot, the opposite of that woman in chapter 12. And this picture, this imagery here of a harlot is surely the imagery of one who tempts or seduces or draws people away from the living God. This harlot, who we're going to see later, is named in verse 5, Babylon the Great, stands for a spirit of worldliness which motivates a godless society all over the world. And so this harlot is that which represents the spirit of worldliness. The ways and the systems and the culture and the values of a world that doesn't worship and adore the living God. Now this Harlot, it's, it's going to be speak here of sexual immorality. But this sexual immorality stands for and speaks of all kinds of other unfaithfulness which people would exercise toward their creator. Uh, it stands for all kinds of worldly sins. It stands for a kind of idolatry which would worship and adore and value created things rather than the Creator. It stands for a self-centeredness, which would put ourselves at the center of our worlds, living for ourselves rather than living for God. It stands for a kind of pride, which would boast of my own accomplishments and belittle the things which God has done or which others do. It stands for a kind of indulgence, an indulgence, whether it be into sex or food or uh, uh, just uh, 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 pleasure and luxury, material things, in which we ignore the standards which God has established in His, wor- in his world and think that the more that we can have of any given thing, the happier that we will be. This sexual immorality here stands for uh, the making people big and making God small. It stands for thinking that my own happiness is what is most important in life. If I can be satisfied, then whatever means I use to get satisfaction, that that's okay. Mentioned earlier that it can stand for idolatry, idolatry of every sort, whether it be the idolatry of sports, or the idolatry of vacations, or the idolatry of beauty, or of popularity, or of uh, uh, even the idolatry of, of academic achievement. That any of these things, when we put them in the place of Ultimate allegiance and ultimate worship of God is a kind of worldliness. 
And that's what it is saying that this great prostitute stands for. It is a worldliness of living our lives not centered on God, but centered on ourselves. Centered on the things of this world. And this worldliness is extremely influential. See that language? The great prostitute. Here she is described as being seated on many waters. Now, these many waters, uh, we are told in verse 15, represents peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. This prostitute is not confined to any region of the world, not just to one ethnic group, but rather is that which influences the vast scope of all humanity. And it has its way, we're told, verse 2, with the kings of the earth who have committed sexual immorality with her. That is, the kings of the earth who have bought into this worldly system, the most powerful and influential of this world who have adopted worldly attitudes. But not just them, we are then told, uh, with the, uh, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth, that's all the rest of us, that's everyone else, that they also have become drunk. So it is, this prostitute has an extraordinary influence, an influence of worldliness that extends uh, everywhere. And it shouldn't surprise us, right, that the world has this kind of pull on people because the world works, as it were, hand in hand with our own sinful natures. It's as it were, our sinful natures from within are causing us to turn away from God elevate ourselves. The world from without is handing us a set of values which correspond with our sinful uh, nature. So it's no wonder that the world has such a pull on people. This idea of the influence of worldliness, friends, let me just make an application at this point. It should make it very clear to us that popularity is no indication of the will of God or of the truth of God. Just because something is popular doesn't mean it's right. We fall into that trap unthinkingly sometimes. We want to be on, we're told, the right side of history. We, we, We wouldn't want to oppose, well, just the, the, the spirit of the age. And and we don't want to be old-fashioned. That would be the worst thing. But I can tell you, I can assure you that, that godliness has, has never been in style. Okay? In every age, in fact, whether you lived 100 years ago or whether you live today or whether you are just being born now and are going to live for 100 more years, to be a Christian, to be committed to the cause of God and of truth means to swim against the tide of our current culture. It is to be in the minority. It is to face opposition from the world. And if you are to do what is right and what is godly, you must always be prepared to do those things which are unpopular. This means that if you're a teenager, 
other friends that you have, everybody's making fun of this one, of this one person, and, and you stand up for that person. We, we shouldn't make fun of that person. You're going to get looks. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. It might be unpopular, but it's the right thing to do. We live in an age, a day and age today in which people do all sorts of things on Sundays. It's a, it's a day to, uh, to fill up with the things of your own pleasure. And if you make a point of, this is the Lord's day. This is a day for his worship. This is a day to attend church, to be with him. That's going to be unpopular in the day in which, you, in which we live. But friends, godliness is unpopular. Because this seductress has an influence that extends throughout the world. Okay, her influence. Secondly, her alliance. Her alliance. Okay, her alliance. Um, here we see this in verse uh, 3. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman. Okay, this is that harlot, the woman. And what is she doing? She is sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. So it was the harlot riding on the beast, being carried along by the beast. Well, we've run into this beast before. This is that beast out of the sea, the seaborn beast, who, as we said several chapters earlier, uh, chapter 13, represents the secular governments of the world exercising a kind of anti-God influence and persecuting the people of God. Uh, the blasphemous names that we are told is, uh, that is all over this scarlet beast reflect its demand, the beast's demand, to be worshipped in the place of God. An a state which is increasingly totalitarian and demands uh, the worship that is due God, it demands that worship for itself. Uh, this beast, we are told, has uh, seven heads, heads referring to a kind of authority, ten horns, horns referring to a kind of a strength, uh, we're going to see next, or next uh, time we're in Revelation in verses 9 through 14, uh, the way that these heads are interpreted, the, the heads of the beast are the kingdoms and empires of the world, the ten horns are the kings, rulers of the world, raised up by Satan. Uh, we're we're going to look at all of that in a future uh, week, but the point is here is that this woman is riding this scarlet beast, a beast that is the color of blood, <laughs> having blasphemous names, seven heads, ten horns. And it means simply this, that worldliness and uh, uh, anti-God, totalitarian government are things which are mutually supportive of one another. The beast, as it were, carries her, empowering her in her immorality and wealth. That sinful debauchery and tyrannical government are things which work hand in hand. How many governments of this world, what, they're, what they often seek is more and more power for themselves. 
to promote their own agenda, which is often an agenda which is contrary to God and which elevates itself in increasing power. Tyranny, fostering immorality, and immorality promoting the acceptance of tyranny. These things working hand in hand with one another. And friends, we just have to be aware of that. I think it's interesting that even at our, the founding of our own nation uh, that seeks to offer a kind of of liberty uh, to people under faithful and good and responsible government, that the founders said that this kind of system will only work with a moral people. That the two things, tyranny and immorality, uh, so often work hand in hand. And it ought not to surprise us in our own day uh, when we see just not only government in our own nation, but throughout the nations of the world, promoting a system of immorality, infringing on the liberties of people to worship God according to His will, to maintain biblical morality, seeking instead to uh, have an agenda of uh, worldly uh, morality. Uh, And and, and friends, we, we just need to be aware of this as Christians. We ought not to be swept up in the tides, thinking that simply because it is something which the governments of this world are promoting, that it is in itself a good thing. Tyranny and immorality, uh, hand in hand. The, the woman's alliance with the beast. Second, or thirdly now, we've moved on from her influence, her alliance, her allurements. Thirdly, her allurements. Uh, this woman was arrayed in a certain way, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Children, if you think of those, imagine this woman, she's dressed purple and scarlet, pearls, jewels, gold. Would you say this woman appears to be wealthy? Is she dressed in a fancy way? The answer would be yes, right? Very much so. These are, these are the colors of royalty. This is a description of expensive clothes, of splendor and magnificence adorned in fancy jewelry. This woman, you look at her and she appears wealthy. She looks, as it were, uh, decadent, expensive, costly, beautiful even. And it enhances the temptation, does it not? Here is a woman that seems to have it all. And I want what she is offering. Is that not how worldliness often works? That worldliness has a certain allure to it. That this is the way to, to wealth, to happiness, to acceptance, to popularity. And it's that which attracts people to it. One writer says that it is bright, glittering, full of blessing, promising happiness, health, peace, and prosperity to all who drink from its cup. We see that even the cup that this woman is holding, we're told, holding in her hand a, a golden cup. I don't know if any of you have ever drunk out of a golden cup. I certainly haven't. I don't own any of those. But this woman does. It's a cup of gold that she has. How tempting this is. How alluring. 
dear friends, such is the way that Satan often sets before us. Satan himself is able to disguise himself like an angel of light, we're told. He can put before our eyes things which seem, at first glance, to be beautiful and desirable. Satan is kind of the master advertiser. Right? You watch an advertisement. I can remember as a child, I watched an advertisement one time for the game Hungry, Hungry Hippos. Well, I didn't think I could live for another moment without this game. I mean, this, the children were so full of life, and they were excited, and they were all smiling, and it was like there was like a big tournament. And for me as a child, a, a tournament was the one thing I always loved, you know. And so, and, and they all, and, and so... My parents got me Hungry Hungry Hippos. I, it was wonderful. I got it. And you know, all you do is you sit there and you just... That's all you do for ages on end. And it's really not that... Ex- I mean, it's just all of the allure that you saw in the advertisement. And you get it and it's all empty. Well, friends, it's that way with everything, right? You watch the car commercial. That car is just gliding on these roads surrounded by mountains and lakes and all the rest. And then you go, you buy the car and you has a problem the next week, right? And you drive it through the cities of Springfield, not the mountains and the lakes and all the rest. You know, it, it's just, it's that way with everything, isn't it? Advertisements, they promise one thing and they, they, don't, they don't fully uh, uh, fulfill those promises. That's why we've learned to read reviews, right? We, we don't pay so much attention to what the advertisement says. We want to know, what do the people who have bought this thing, what do they actually think of it? Well, dear friends, Satan is like a great advertiser. Uh, He makes this world seem alluring and attractive. Life without God, it's appealing. Live by your own standards. Make yourself happy. You can do it. You can accomplish it. Make your own way. Just a little bit more money and you're going to be happy. If you can just get this... Be good at this sport. If you, can, if, if you can become more popular on social media, if you could have these clothes, if you could begin to look in this, in this way, then you're going to have it all. You're going to be satisfied. And we can easily begin to believe those false advertisements of, of Satan. And in fact, that's exactly what it says here. This worldly woman, this prostitute, arrayed, as she is in purple and scarlet, adorned, gold, jewels, pearls. She has in her hand a golden cup. And there's part of us that says, yes, I want to be just like her. But then when she drinks this cup, we are told that it is full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And this moves us on then to the fourth point. Because the fourth point then is her abominations. If this harlot is one who is alluring, she is one also a harlot of abominations. This golden cup, which suggested riches and glory and happiness and a kind of decadence and satisfaction, is one which when you drink of it is actually full of abominations and impurities. That is, to live as this woman lives is actually to live an abominable life, an impure, a filthy life, 
a, a life that is contrary to God. And we need to be able to see through that. That, that compared to the beauty and glory of God in all of His holiness, when we worship and serve anything in this created order rather than Him, it is filthy and gross. And we need to see that. That the love of riches, what are we loving after all but gold and silver coins which are going to perish with their use? Popularity, it's here one day, gone uh, tomorrow. Beauty, it's fading. Anything that we might live for, your athletic ability, your winning teams, you might have it for a little bit, but then it's gone. Or one misstep, and uh, you, 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 you're no longer a winner anymore. That's what, if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, that's what it's all about. The emptiness, the vanity of the things of this world. That everything in this world that, we, that you might ultimately live for ends in uh, nothing. And in fact, in fact, sin is that which often leads to more sin. Right? A bitterness in our heart leads to a deep-seated hatred. Which then can lead to violence. A covetous look at an advertisement, a love of a material thing, can, love, can lead to a kind of lack of contentment which leaves us absolutely miserable. A life lived merely for myself for the things of this world at the end of that life leads to a despair and a hopelessness in the face of death. The way of this world in the end leads to further and further sins and is empty and loathsome and frustrating. And friends, to live, the, to live according to this world at the end of our lives, if our eyes are open to it, we realize that we have just spent our whole lives living for those things which are contrary to the one who made me and gave me life and put me here in this world for him and his glory. And that's, that's an awful thing. And what we face then upon death is nothing less than the judgment of Almighty God. You see, you drink the gold cup, and what comes out are abominations and impurities and emptiness. And in fact, we read in verse 6 of the worst abomination of them all, that I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That it is actually this spirit of worldliness that has led to the killing of Christians, to the, to the suppression of Christians uh, throughout the world. We find this in many nations of the world, do we not? Even today where Christians are put to death or they are imprisoned or they are uh, excluded from society. And it's this woman who has everything to do with it, this harlot. These are the saints, the holy ones, the martyrs, those who bear witness to Jesus. And so again, to put yourself on the side of the world is to put yourself on the side of those who are opposed to Christ and to His kingdom and to His people. We don't want to do that, do we? So do you see the abominations that the way of the world is filled with? This world is not friendly to grace, oh dear friends. I mean, you think of Judas Iscariot. He's a perfect example of this. 
Judas Iscariot was drawn away, was he not, by a love of money, a love of worldliness. Thirty pieces of silver, they're going to make me happy. And for those 30 pieces of silver, he was willing to crucify the Lord of glory. You know, dear friends, how, how it is true today that to choose the way of the world is to set yourself against Christ and against his people. And so we see there the abominations of this harlot. But then this now moves us fifth and finally, fifth and finally, uh, to her character, her character. We see this in verse 5. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great. Mother of prostitutes and averse abominations. That this woman has on her forehead the name that truly identifies who she is. It says it's a mystery. I think the reason it's a mystery is because uh, to many in this world... It is unknown. They don't have their eyes open to the reality of the seduction of this harlot. That what she is doing is leading them to the path of death. That for people who are engaged in following this world with all their heart, rather than Jesus Christ, that she is leading them to a path of death. And they don't get it. But here he's saying, for you, O believer, look, your eyes are opened. The mystery is revealed. This, this is who this one really is. She is Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and averse abominations. That, that language of Babylon is a language which has a long biblical history. It begins all the way back in Genesis 10 and 11 with the word Babel. It was the forebearers of Babylon who first sought to build a tower by their own strength out of pride with no regard to the glory of God. And God cast them down. And what was attempted there by those first builders of the Tower of Babel has been attempted in human history ever since. It found presence in uh, the Babylon of the Old Testament. Uh, do you remember King Nebuchadnezzar uh, at one point boasting about the Babylon which, uh, which he had built? It's in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30. Let me just uh, turn there and read that. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar in his boast... He says this, that at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It was his boast. Look what I've accomplished by my own hands. Look what man can do without God. And just as the people who built the Tower of Babel were judged and their languages were scattered, so we are told that as these words were in the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar, that while they were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox." He was brought very low. Well, the Tower of Babel, 
this, this nation of Babylon. It found in the first century existence in Rome. Rome, the mighty empire of Rome. Emperors who demanded worship for themselves, seeking to build this land for their own glory, and yet the Lord also brought them down. Where is the Roman emperor today? Roman Empire today? Well, Babylon stands, dear friends, for all who would in their own pride and in their own strength set themselves against God and seek to live life apart from Him. Seek to live lives without worshiping Him, without serving Him, without regard uh, to His law. And he is saying, just as happened with the builders of the Tower of Babel and with Nebuchadnezzar and all of his boasting, just as, as what would happen with Rome, John's predicting here, is also going to happen with every society which sets itself against the Lord. And with everyone who believes the seductions of this woman, they are going to fall. They're going to be judged. They will come to nothing. That is the true character of Babylon. That is the true character of this harlot. And so it leads each one of us at the close of today's sermon here to examine ourselves, uh, does it not? What is my attitude towards this present world, society, lived apart from God. 1 John chapter 2 tells us what our attitude ought to be. When it says there, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you love this world or the things that are in this world? you recognize this prostitute and the ways that you are being tempted by her? Let me just ask a couple of questions. First of all, do you recognize what offers this harlot has made to entice you away from Jesus Christ? What are the particular allurements that you see in this world? What particular offers has she made to you? Do you see them for what they are? Do you recognize them? Not as something innocent and to be played with, but rather as something dangerous and deadly. What particular offers does she make to you? How about this question? How have you made accommodations to worldliness? Are there things that you tolerate now that maybe you didn't at one time? Things that you once were sensitive to. This is of the world. But now your sensitivities have dulled. Beware of that subtleness of being seduced by this world. Have you made accommodations where you once had not? How about this question? Have you been afraid at times to lose the favor and applause 
of this world? Have you been afraid to lose the favor and the applause of this world? Again, I think at times uh, we can be, in subtle ways, we want to be popular in the world in which we live. We want to be accepted. But are we willing in every point where the Lord calls us to, to stand on His side against the world without compromise, not caring what this world thinks of us? Here's another question. Are there certain luxuries that you have that you would resent if God took those things away? Are there certain luxuries that you have that you would resent if God took those things away? It is not bad to enjoy the good gifts which God gives. And he gives many kind gifts to his children. The homes that we live in. Many of the luxuries that we enjoy. But do you know, none of these things are to so captivate our heart that we would say, I can't live without it. Is there something that you have that you say, I don't think I could live without that? Well, then it's become a God to you. One more question. And it is this, are you so captivated by this world that God has any more little or no time? In other words, have you found that the world is so filling your time and your life that God is being increasingly pushed out of it. Well, that's a sign also of being pulled in by the seductions of this harlot. Might the Lord keep us from doing these things and to identify, to see Babylon, to see this harlot for what she is, the danger that she is, to recognize her seductions and instead to desire to grow more and more in the love and knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And with this I close, you know, the surest way, dear friends, to resist Babylon. You need to recognize her. You need to see her. You need to see Satan's ploys, the way that he is using the worldly temptations that you face, yes. But the surest way, the most important thing in resisting this world is to grow more and more in love with our Savior, Jesus Christ and a desire to be like Him. And that you every day would wake up with this longing in your heart, Lord, conform me more to the image of my Savior. Help me to walk in fellowship with Him. And as you do that, you will find that the allurements of this world grow less and less desirable. Might the Lord help us to do that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, the warnings of your word, even the vision that you've given us today of this great prostitute who represents the systems and the values of this world. And Lord, we thank you that you unveil her, you reveal her for what she is. We pray, O Lord, our God, that we would have the grace, that you would so fill us with your spirit that we would desire to be found on the Lord's side and not on the side of this world, that we would walk closely with you. Fill us with the mind of Christ, we pray. Draw near to us in the sweetness of fellowship. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're going to sing in response now. Hymn number 400.